So I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving uh, this past week. Maybe you got a chance to eat turkey. Uh, we found a, a turkey that we really liked, a smoked turkey, uh, but it didn't compare to the turkey nuggets that Big L made on Sunday night. Uh, those were fantastic uh, here at, as part of the Thanksgiving service. So turkey hasn't always been a part of the Thanksgiving tradition. When the pilgrims celebrated the first uh, Thanksgiving on, uh, in October of 1621 on Plymouth, there was no turkey involved. They were just celebrating the harvest that they had that year. But by 1863, when Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving to be a national holiday, Turkey was a part of that celebration. But did you know that not everybody eats turkey? You know, it's, you know, maybe you're allergic to turkey, or you're a vegan, or you're a vegetarian, but not everybody eats turkey. But those people who don't want to don't eat turkey, apparently still want to experience turkey. They still want to participate in the Thanksgiving tradition of turkey. So in 1995, there was a company that invented tofurkey. Okay? Tofurkey looks like turkey, and it smells like turkey. And actually, this, this past Thanksgiving, they sold their five millionth tofurkey vegan holiday feast, right? And if you were a, a turkey aficionado and I were to hold before you tofurkey and turkey and you were to taste the two of them, I'll bet that you could tell the difference between tofurkey and the real turkey. Well, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at imitations, four responses to discipleship that are not discipleship. And we're going to compare that to what is true discipleship in the kingdom. And we're going to do that under two headings. We're going to see the responses to the kingdom in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12 and 20 and 21. And then we're going to see the calling to the kingdom in Mark 3, 13 through 19. So let's look together at God's word here, beginning at Mark chapter 3 and verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from, the, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangeres, that is, the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So far, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to learn what true discipleship is, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and him only. So first of all, responses to the kingdom, and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 12 and 20 and 21 here. And when you get to verses 7 through 12, 7 through 12 serves as a summary passage. It's kind of a state of the ministry passage, and Mark is answering the question, what is it that Jesus' ministry looks like? And we see in Mark chapter 3 verses 7 through 12 that Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee, that he's drawing great crowds, that he's healing the sick, that he's driving out demons, and then he's telling them not to say who he is. And this should be a little bit like deja vu. It's kind of like we've heard it before. It's like he's repeating himself. It should be a little bit like deja vu. It's like we've heard it before. It's like he's repeating himself, right? Why? Because back in Mark chapter 1, there was, another, there was another summary passage in Mark 1, 21 through 45. And we see there that Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee, and he's drawing great crowds, and he's healing the sick, and he's driving out demons, and he's telling them to be silent. And actually, back in Mark chapter 1, right next to that summary passage, there's a calling of four disciples to discipleship, where he calls Peter and Andrew and James and John. So why do we have another summary passage here? Right? Why, why come back to this? Well, this summary passage is different than the summary passage in Mark chapter 1, because Mark weaves into the text four different responses to Jesus. And these responses are important because these two different summary sections in chapter 1 and now in chapter 3, they bracket five controversial questions. And if, if you've been with us as we've been walking through Mark, you've seen these five controversial questions. The first controversial question was, what about the forgiveness of sins? And then there was, should Jesus be eating with tax collectors and sinners? And then it was, should Jesus' disciples be fasting or feasting? And then there were two controversial questions around the Sabbath. And so here at the end of these five controversial questions, Mark is saying, in light of these controversies, in light of this confusion, how will you respond to Jesus? What's your reaction to the kingdom. 
And here Mark gives four responses that fall short. He gives four responses that are incomplete. He gives you four responses to tell you what discipleship is not. And he says that discipleship is not the response of the Pharisees. It's not the response of the family. It's not the response of the demons. And it's not the response of the crowds. You see, the Pharisees reject and the families dismiss. And the demons give lip service, and the crowds just use Jesus. And all of those responses are just tofurky. So let's take a closer look at these four responses. First of all, the Pharisees reject, and we see this in verse 6. And yes, I'm cheating a little bit here because verse 6 isn't a part of our passage, but the whole reason that Jesus withdraws from the synagogue to the Sea of Galilee in verse 7 is because of the response of the Pharisees in verse 6. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were at the center of these five controversies. And there's been a growing tension between Jesus and the Pharisees that comes to a head in verse 6. Look at Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't really get along. They, they were kind of warring parties. They were constantly at odds. But here they found something that they agree on. They both want to eliminate Jesus. And this is the response of the Pharisees. They reject Jesus. They eliminate Jesus. They want to, put, they want to push Jesus away. And I would put to you this morning that sometimes our hearts can have that same response to Jesus, that we can reject Jesus. And we can reject Jesus in many ways. It can be an overt rejection, a willful resistance, an obstinate disbelief, where you're actively pushing Jesus away, where you're actively eliminating him from your life. But it also can be more subtle. There's that quote by Flannery O'Connor in Wise Blood, where she's describing one of her characters, and she says, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Have you ever experienced that in your own heart, where you're, you're moving away from Jesus, you're going to avoid Jesus at all costs, even if it means avoiding sin, and you begin to drift towards self-sufficiency and self-reliance and independence, things that we promote in the American culture, right? Do you know when you're doing that, you're pushing Jesus away? You're seeking to eliminate Jesus? You're rejecting his lordship in your life? And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, this may be your reaction to Jesus. You're pushing Jesus away. You're giving Jesus the Heisman, right? You're holding him at arm's length. But it's not just unbelievers who push Jesus away, is it? I can't tell you how many times I've ventured out into the world, out into ministry in my own strength. And when we do that, we're rejecting his lordship in our life. That's the response of the Pharisees. 
But then there's the response of the family, and and the family dismisses Jesus. And now we're going to be working backwards through the text. So we see this in verse 21, in verse 21. And when the family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So the family dismisses Jesus by saying that he's crazy, he's lost it, he's nuts, Right, Fill in your favorite euphemism here. The elevator doesn't go to the top floor. The lights are on, but nobody's home. He's a couple cards short of a full deck. Right, The cheese has slipped off his cracker. <clears throat> Have you ever been in a place where you just want to dismiss Jesus and his claims? They seem a little too far-fetched. Right, They're a little crazy. He that there's the virgin birth, right? That virgins don't conceive. That there's the resurrection from the dead. Je- Jesus claimed that. We've never been able to duplicate that. What about the hypostatic union where one person has two natures? Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. That seems far-fetched. Jesus claimed that, right? And we want to dismiss his claims, but maybe it's a little bit more subtle in your own life. Aren't there seasons where we treat Jesus as more of a fairy tale than a friend, as more of a myth than a man, as more of a lunatic than our Lord? And when we do that, we're dismissing him. We're writing him off. We're living life like he's not real. And that's the response of the family. But then we have the response of the demons. And the demons simply give lip service. And we see this response in verses 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, I spent 21 years of my life as the director of admissions at Reformed Theological Seminary, and we spent a lot of time trying to invest in wise advertising. And on the surface, it looks here like you've got the perfect ingredients for an advertising campaign, right? Jesus has drawn a large crowd, and then you have truth spoken about his identity. His true identity is proclaimed. And after all, this is The whole goal of the book of Mark is to proclaim Jesus' true identity. Back in Mark Mark 1.1, Mark introduces his main thesis of the book, that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everything else in Mark's gospel is trying to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark wants wants you to say with the centurion, at Jesus' crucifixion in Mark 15, 39, truly, this man was the Son of God. And yet here, Jesus shuts it down. Why? Well, the commentators talk about this as the messianic secret. You see, there are multiple times throughout the Gospels where Jesus tells both demons and those who he whom he has healed, not to reveal who he is. And there are two reasons for this. The first is that you can't understand Jesus apart from the cross. 
You can't understand Jesus apart from the cross. If you just see Jesus as someone who heals or someone who casts out demons, you're not getting the full picture of who Jesus is. It's incomplete. It's lacking. You can only understand the title, the Son of God, when you see that Jesus, as the Son of God, is constrained out of love to lay down his life that you might be rescued from the wages of sin, that you might be rescued from certain death. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand who Jesus is. And so here, the crowds have no context to understand that Jesus came to die. And so he quiets the demons. But the second reason for the messianic secret is the messenger. You see, this truth is found on the lips of demons. And Jesus tells the demons to be quiet because he doesn't want to be misrepresented. You see, it's not just the message that's important. It's the messenger. The demons were telling the truth, but they were living a lie. They were speaking about the light, but they were a part of the darkness. You see, one day you can say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus might say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, another response to Jesus that is not discipleship is honoring him with your lips, but not with your life. You see, you can know a lot of right things about Jesus. You might even say, Jesus is the Son of God. You might go to a Bible-believing church or attend a fabulous world-class seminary, but unless your life says the same thing, it's not discipleship. It's just another noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just another whitewashed tomb. And aren't there times in our lives where we might mouth the words, but we're really just going through the motions? Where our lives and our loves don't cherish Christ as king? That's the response of the demons. They just give lip service. So you have the response of the Pharisees, you have the response of the family, you have the response of the demons, and then you have the response of the crowds. And the crowds, they just use Jesus for personal gain. And we see this response in verses 7 through 10. So Jesus is withdrawing, right, to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and there's this great crowd following him, and they come from all over. But why is it that they're coming? Why are they following him? Well, in verse 8, it says that they heard all that he was doing, and they came. Well, what was he doing? He was healing the sick, and he was casting out demons. Do you see what's happening here? The crowds aren't coming to be with Jesus. They're coming because of what Jesus can do for them. They're coming because they want to use Jesus for personal gain. And this is another response that Mark is saying is not discipleship. When you follow Jesus to use him for personal gain. But again, if we're honest, don't we find our own hearts doing this much more often than we'd like? We're not worshiping Jesus. We're simply using him. We don't find him beautiful in and of himself. 
We, we just love him the way children love the candy man, right? We love him because of the gifts that he brings. We love him because he works for us so far. It's a vending machine view of Jesus, right? He's more of a credit card to us than he is our sovereign king. You see, just because you're following Jesus doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. And that's the response of the crowd. So Mark is saying that the response of discipleship is not the Pharisees who reject Jesus, and it's not the family who dismisses Jesus, and it's not the demons who give Jesus lip service, and it's not the crowds who use Jesus for personal gain. And there's an irony in the text. You see, the Pharisees know who Jesus claims to be, and they reject him. And the family is close to Jesus, but they have no idea who he really is. And, and, and the demons declare that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't follow him. And the crowds follow him, but they don't, but they don't really understand. They're just using him for personal gain. You see, you can know who Jesus claims to be, and you can be close to Jesus, and you can even declare that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And you can follow Jesus. But none of those things in and of themselves makes you a disciple of Jesus. So what is it that makes you a disciple of Jesus? What is discipleship in the kingdom? Well, that takes us to calling to the kingdom. And we see this in verses 13 through 19. We're going to look at this under three headings. Who does Jesus call? Again, we're going to be working backwards through the text. Who does Jesus call in verses 16 through 19? What does Jesus call them to, verses 14 and 15? And then how does Jesus call them in verses 13 and 14? So first of all, who does Jesus call? Well, Mark has already told us about the calling of Simon, that is Peter, and Andrew, and then James and John back in chapter 1. And then he told you about the calling of Matthew or Levi in chapter 2. And in Luke 10, Mark calls 72 disciples and sends them out. But Mark here wants to focus your attention on 12 disciples. Now, there are lots of disciples in the kingdom of God, right? But he wants to focus your attention on these 12. And these 12, minus Judas, according to verse 14, become the apostles. So why is it that Mark is focusing on 12 disciples? Well, by choosing 12 disciples, Mark and Jesus are telling you something about this kingdom. You see, the number 12 connects you to Israel, right? In our Old Testament reading this morning in Genesis chapter 35, we saw that there were 12 sons that were born to Israel, and those 12 sons became 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes became the nation of Israel. But in Jesus' day, the nation of Israel was no more. And yet the prophets had promised that this kingdom would be restored, that there would be the restoration of Israel. And so as Jesus selects 12 disciples, he's signaling that his kingdom is the restoration of the people of God 
that the prophets had promised. He's showing you that there's a connection between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. He's saying that which you've longed for for years is finally here. We're beginning again. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is being restored. The promises of the prophets are at long last being fulfilled. But there's also discontinuity here. You see, while each of these 12 men are Jewish, there's not a one-to-one correlation. There's not one man from this tribe and another man from that tribe, right? They're all Jewish, but they're from different tribes. And it's as if Mark is signaling that this kingdom isn't the same thing as the nation of Israel. This is something new. But this new thing, the kingdom of God that Jesus is building, is fulfilling ancient promises. But I also want you to notice here that this kingdom has room for a wide range of people. Now, all of these 12 men are Jewish, and that's important for the continuity uh, of the Old Testament to the New Testament, interpreting the promises of God. But they all come from different socioeconomic classes, right? It appears that Peter and Andrew were poor while James and John were rich. They come from different vocations. They're fishermen and a tax collector and a political activist and an accountant. They come from different political parties. Matthew was working for the man, right? And Simon was as anti-government as you could get. He was a zealot, right? In fact, these two would have absolutely hated each other. They couldn't have been in the same room as each other without drawing swords and spitting and cutting. You know, like they, they hated each other, right? These two politically different people. And yet, because Jesus has called them to himself, they have more in common now than they did before. This is part of the beauty of the gospel, is unity in diversity. As I'm united to Jesus and you're united to Jesus, now we're united to each other. And when that happens, what unites us becomes greater than what separates us. But did you notice the order that Jesus lists the disciples in? I think by listing the disciples in this order, Mark is pointing to something that they all have in common. You see, the list begins with Peter, and Peter denied Jesus. And the list ends with Judas, and Judas betrayed Jesus. You see, every man on this list is flawed and fallen and weak and inadequate. And do you know what what Jesus is saying here? Do you know what Mark is saying here? That there's room in the kingdom for you and for me. Now, you may notice that it's only Jewish men that are listed here, and that's important for the parallel with Israel. But Jesus' kingdom is much broader than that. You see, contrary to public opinion and what was common for that day, Jesus gives an incredibly prominent place to women in his kingdom. And this is recorded in the Gospels, right? It's the two Marys who first see the resurrected Jesus, and they go and tell the disciples Mary Magdalene's story of anointing Jesus and preparing him for burial is going to be told wherever the gospel is proclaimed. 
And though these are only Jewish men, Jesus' kingdom includes men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And Jesus is saying, there's room in the kingdom for you. And there's room in the kingdom for me. Well, what is it that Jesus calls them to? We see this mission of the disciples in verses 14 and 15, and it's threefold. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12 whom he named the apostles so that, one, they might be with him, and two, he might send them out to preach, and three, they have authority to cast out demons, right? So they might be with him, he might send them out to preach, and they might have authority to cast out demons, And I want to suggest to you that that mission of discipleship is very similar to our mission today. Now, you may not be a preacher. I'm guessing that not many people have cast out demons in this past week. So let me reframe this a little bit. True disciples spend time with Jesus, tell others about Jesus, and are given authority over the kingdom of darkness. See, discipleship in the kingdom involves spending time with the king, right? Getting to know Jesus, knowing his loves and his desires, knowing his heart. And how do we do that? Through reading the word, through prayer, through spending time with him, and through understanding him in the rubric of the cross. You see, you need to follow not just the Jesus who heals, but the Jesus who dies. And when you spend time with the Jesus who dies, that will lead you to take up your cross and follow him, even if that path is through the way of suffering. And then there's discipleship in the kingdom necessarily involves telling others about Jesus. And I think we tend to limit this to evangelism. And evangelism is an incredibly important part of this. But when we're thinking about telling others about Jesus, I think it needs to begin with your own heart. Luther says that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, right? So it begins with preaching the gospel to your own heart. I think proclaiming Jesus is honoring God with your life and not just your lips. I think it's loving your neighbor because you understand the love that you've received. I think it's striving for holiness and being more and more conform to the image of Christ. And as we do those things, Jesus is proclaimed not only with our words, but also with our deeds. Part of discipleship is proclaiming Jesus. And then another part of discipleship is spiritual warfare. You need to connect casting out demons here in Mark to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, right? that the Christian life is about spiritual warfare, that our battle is against powers and principalities. And as we battle with the, with the powers of darkness, when we proclaim the good news of the gospel, the captives are set free. Men and women go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They go from being ruled by sin to having hope in a Savior. And so that's the mission that we're called to. But then notice how Jesus calls them in verses 13 and 14. You see, bo- both the crowds 
and the disciples came and they followed, right? But why they came is different. In verse 8, the crowd heard all that he was doing and they came to him. But in verse 13, Jesus called the disciples and they came to him. And so this is what distinguishes true disciples from the crowd. It's that they're called. And actually, as Jesus calls disciples to him, he makes disciples. Now, that the word that's used in English there, and you see it in verse 14 and verse 16, is the word appointed. But in the Greek, that's poieo. That's that Jesus made the 12. Je- Jesus made the 12 disciples. And it's the same idea that we have in the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, you're not a disciple because you're following the mission. You're not a disciple because you're close to Jesus. His family was close too. You're not a disciple because you're following Jesus. The crowd followed Jesus too. You're not a disciple because you're proclaiming Jesus. The demons proclaimed Jesus too. You're a disciple because you're called by Jesus. He called you to himself. He made you his own. He made you a disciple. And therefore, though there may be seasons of your life where your response to Jesus reflects the response of the Pharisees, right, where you're rejecting him, or it reflects the response of the family that's dismissing him, or the response of the demons where you're only giving him lip service, or the response of the crowds where you're using him, if Jesus called you to himself, you will always return to the path of true discipleship. Why? Because you can't undo what Jesus has done. Jesus called you to himself. Jesus made you his disciple. You belong to him. But here's the thing that really hits me in this passage. Do you know why Jesus called you to to himself? Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him, Those whom he desired. Those whom he desired. You see, if you're a true disciple, if Jesus has called you to himself and made you his own, he did that because he desired you. He knows that you're flawed and fallen and weak and inadequate, just like everyone on the list, and yet he wants you. He knows that you're going to deny him and reject him and dismiss him and only give him lip service, and you're going to use him. And he says, I'm going to build my kingdom with him. I'm going to build my kingdom with her. Kurt Thompson says that we live all of our lives looking for someone who's looking for us. We want to be wanted. We desire to be desired. We long to be longed for. And if Jesus has called you to himself, Jesus wants you. Jesus desires you. Jesus is looking for you. And as that becomes more and more real to your heart, 
You'll want to spend time with Jesus. Your life will proclaim Jesus. And as you find the acceptance that you've been looking for all of your life in the calling of Jesus, your life will become more cross-shaped. And you'll be conformed more and more to his image. And then you'll walk the path of true discipleship. Albeit inconsistently and imperfectly, but you'll persevere to the end. Because you know that that is the path that leads you home to the tender arms of your loving Savior, where you'll finally hear the words that you've longed for all of your life. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And you'll only get there because Jesus has brought you all the way home. That's true discipleship. You could say that's the real turkey. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we see this calling to discipleship, as we see the responses of the Pharisees and the family and the demons and the crowds, we see our own hearts in those responses way too often. But Father, we take refuge and true delight in the fact that you have called us to be a part of your kingdom because you desire us. Father, would you teach us the good news of the gospel to our hearts that you've desired us and therefore you will take us all the way home and I pray that that would be fuel for us to walk the path of true discipleship. And I ask this in the one who makes true discipleship possible.